and, and our belief is, uh, my fundamental conviction is that God has been preparing a message in your heart already today that he wants you to hear. So my prayer for you this morning is that you'll be listening for that word. You'll be listening for what God is, is trying to speak into your life. And sometimes, and we always say, what's that mean? I mean, speak audibly, speak through circumstance, speak through other persons, um, but just be listening to that this morning. I would encourage you to do that. Uh, because what I want you to, 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 to know today is that God is always preparing a way. Always preparing a way. You know? Sometimes we, we can't see any path through here, but God's preparing a path. And that's going to be the text we're going to read today from Acts. God's always preparing a way. But we shouldn't be surprised because we've been in the book of Acts now for like, what, six weeks? And every time the circumstances come up, God's indwelling spirit, his Holy Spirit, the pneuma, the hagios pneuma, this beautiful gift of God that was promised by Jesus before he died on the cross and was delivered after he went to heaven, this gift of God that has been forming and creating from the beginning of time has been poured out on the earth. And that's why I have such a hard time believing that the world is just condemned to go to hell in a handbasket. Because God is moving. God is moving. And this is what we, we believe. And what we've read in Acts is every time someone don't see a way out of something, God has gone ahead and prepared a way. So that's the word for you today, that you would know that God is preparing a way, a way that may not be clear yet. Now, as I get started, I, I have to go, you know, it's funny because sometimes you know, um, I don't know what happens with this preaching event, but sometimes there's this idea that when I preach, you know, um, it's, it's, it's perfect. It's, it's not perfect. It's perfected in your heart through the word of God. It's perfected in you. And, and there's something, it's like an artist, you know, an artist who would put something on the wall, like over there, you know, or, and, and, and somehow when you come to it, you bring stuff to it. And that's why it's so important you're listening for the word of God. But I want to share with you a correction and an apology. Because it's funny, you can get, you get so into the word and so into what's going on, and I do too, because man, my heart just, I love, I love the word. I love the word. Because it has, it's that double-edged sword. It has a way to transform your life. It has a way to speak into your life. And, and this old, dusty book will change everything for you if you'll only engage it. But one of the things that happened last week, and I remember it after, uh, after the sermon, someone just didn't sit right with it. And I was talking about the idea that, they both, that both Cornelius and Peter were praying, right? They were both praying. And I got on this bent about uh, prosuke prayer, right? And, 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 and that was great. But I made the mistake of saying this, and I want to clarify it this morning because I think it matters when we gather together. That I said that it's like that kind of prayer where you roll over like a dog. Well, I was mixing metaphors. Do you remember back when we talked about Jesus coming into the world in the manger almost a year ago, almost a year ago now? We're talking about how Jesus came, and when the wise men in the book of Matthew came, how they, they um, uh, proscuneo, <laughs> they rolled over and licked his hand. This is not prayer, brothers and sisters. It's worship. It's worship. And so I just wanted to make that clarification and an apology for saying that, because it's, it, it does matter, that somehow that in prayer we're extending ourselves to God, right? And somehow in prayer we're just longing, we're just reaching, we're, we're just trying. And sometimes I said, the word of God shines around me. Sometimes the way we pray isn't by reaching, but by falling down. But we're reaching for the heavens. We're reaching for the creator. We're longing for a conversation in our prayer. This is true, and this is going to be the text today. But when we come to worship, 
we come to worship, we come to just bask in his glory. I love when we come and we sing these songs that sometimes affirm things in our hearts that we, we, we've forgotten. That God is worthy to be worshiped. No matter how you feel today, God is worthy for the words. He's worthy for the effort to get out of bed if you're not a morning person. He's worthy to be worshiped, and we're just basking in that. So I just want to make that, it's funny, because I do, you get hung up on it, you're like, oh, that was such a great idea, this kind of idea of the dog, but that's how we worship, you know, kind of like just longing and waiting and kissing his hand. I hope you experienced that this morning. I have. I have. And I pray that we're not done yet. But last week, we talked about how Cornelius and Peter were both praying. And this week, it's funny because last week was about, uh, this week's title is The Praying Church. It's actually, this one's about prayer. And that one seems a lot about prayer to me already, you know. So there's consistency in the Christian witness that what we do as we pray to God, we speak to God. And, and so uh, as we get started this morning, we're going to start where we always start. We always start here in prayer. I pray this in the morning, before your feet hit the bed, you would say a prayer to God. It can be a quick prayer. We're talking about dinner prayers last night. Sometimes the prayer for dinner happens between the bowl and your mouth. That's okay. It can happen right there. You know what I'm saying? You're really hungry. You just go, God, thank you for food. That's about all it takes. I'm saying that there's time in your life to be communicating with God when you're driving in your car, when you're laying in the bed in the morning. One of my bed, the best prayers I have every day is before I kick my feet over the side of the bed, I pray a prayer before my feet touch the floor. I've talked to some people who've said they pray at night. My sister-in-law, Casey, had, had to medical procedure done, and they said, they said uh, they're, we're, you're going to go under now, and, and she said, um, well, can I, um, can I pray first? <laughs> Anesthesiologist had done his job. <laughs> sure you can, and she says, her witness to us is this, all I said was, dear Jesus, <laughs> and then she woke up in recovery. And I know people who love that last prayer of the day, the prayer that they start to pray and they start to bring people to mind to, to long for the eternal God as they lay in bed and their mind unwinds for the day and they remember all the people they've encountered, maybe the days tomorrow, and their last thought is they drift off. It's powerful stuff, prayer. And we should never forget that. And I would encourage you to ingest it, get it in your life in any way you can, in any way you can. So we're going to start like we always do. We're going to pray. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, your word makes so many promises and makes so many proclamations that are too great for our minds, that are too, too amazing to, to fully comprehend. But today, Lord, we pray that by the, the presence of your spirit, by the promise that Jesus is with us today, the word would be open to our minds and our minds to the word, that we might be transformed a little bit, more like our Savior and your Son, more like our Lord and Master that we would live like him and be like him and bring glory to you because you are worthy. This is our prayer as we start today, Father God. In the name of Jesus, amen. So here we go. We're going to get into the book of Acts again, Acts chapter 12. We're, we're journeying with family groups through this kind of uh, curriculum on Acts. It's been really great because there's these themes that start to kind of come out. One of them is being prayer. One of them is God going ahead of us. And this is going to be a kind of the same story again here in the cha 12th chapter of the book of Acts. So turn to the chapter 12, if you would. I think it's page 765. 765. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one on the chair. You can read that today. You can take it with you if you don't have a Bible at home. We'd love for you to engage in the Word there's something that's amazing about Scripture. 
And so, but before we get into that chapter 12 and read that together, I want to do that. But I want to make sure that we say that the context a little bit, what happens here is you remember Saul was converted, right? A few weeks ago, Saul was converted. And Saul has become Paul at this point, and he's traveling with Barnabas. And back in chapter 11, verse 26, you'll be on the same page uh, for you all. Um, chapter uh, 11, verse 26, it says, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. This is Barnabas. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for uh, Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. So they're teaching there in, in, in uh, Antioch. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, we've talked about that before. That's kind of a big deal. Some of us profess to be Christians, right? We claim that. Some of us feel like we're persecuted because we're Christians. Sometimes we feel like we can't have a voice in the room anymore because we're Christians. Sometimes we feel like there's all kinds of baggage with the word Christian. But I want to say to you that in the context of the story we're about to read about Peter, it's important to note that for the first time in history, this guy named Saul and Barnabas lead this pack of folks for a year that begin to be called Christians. Now, Christians isn't, isn't necessarily a glorifying word. You might feel sometimes like you don't want to tell friends or family you're a Christian because it's going to start a war. There wasn't much difference then. It wasn't the best thing. As a matter of fact, uh, the word wasn't self-imposed. It was imposed by others. It was imposed by those who stood outside the circle and wanted to kind of uh, uh, cast judgment or, 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 or make a kind of a, a, a remark at someone's expense. And they became to be called Christianos. Christianos, right? And it's, a, it's a, a modification of the word Christos. And it meant, literally, listen to this, it meant little anointed ones. Because this early church really believed that God had poured his spirit out on all God's people. And that somehow, through this death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God Almighty, that God had come down and anointed them as well, which is a frightening thing sometimes to think about. But they believed it so much so that the people around them outside of the community started to say, you're like little anointed ones. You're those ones who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And that is still our confession today. It's the most uncomfortable thing. You can have a civil conversation, but the minute you say you're a Christian, they're going, oh boy, right? You actually believe that? And you have to say, yeah, I actually believe that. Little Christ's. It's our prayer, too. Be more like him every day. Little Christs. So that, I want to throw that in context a little bit, right? And then here we go. We're going to roll through the text together. We're going to start in chapter 12, verse 1, and read and, and kind of talk as we go here. But it says, It was about this time, it was around that time, that King Herod was, had arrested some who belonged to the church, also known as the people of the way, because they were going somewhere, and intending to persecute them. This was his intent. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also, and this happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so right away here at the beginning of the story, there's more persecution of the church, right? But the persecution seems to be ramping up. We've had the first martyr in Stephen, right? We've had Saul coming to kill Christians, and there's a reprieve because God changes Saul's heart, right? But then you've got this guy, King Herod, who's now going after the apostles. Have you ever heard the word, if you want to kill a snake, you cut off the head, Right? And they're convinced this is a movement of people, not a movement of God. Even though back in the assembly, someone said, if this is of God, we can't stop it. 2,000 years later, this proves to be true. But they believe if they went after the head, they could kill the body. That it would, it would not survive without someone, uh, an apostle in charge of it. And so they're going after the apostles of Jesus to take them out. And the story here is about King Herod and then James, the brother of John, is mentioned, right? 
And so I want to talk here about Herod. It's really interesting if you get into the word a little bit, all the places that Herods show up. And I say Herods because there's more than one King Herod in the scriptures, right? And I'll talk about three of them. There's Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the one who was killing babies when he heard the Messiah was born. I'm not sure why he was so great about Herod the Great, but that's what they called him, probably because they had to. <laughs> you know, you don't call him Herod the Less because <laughs> you'll be killed. So he's Herod the Great. But he was really an ill-tempered person. I mean, he would turn on his own family. He was one of those paranoid leaders. And anyone who threatened his power, he would just cut him off to the point that he would order the slaughter of a bunch of babies because one of them might bring salvation. Huh. First Herod. That's not the Herod here, though. The second Herod we hear about is Antipas Herod. And Antipas Herod is the one who beheads John the Baptist and has it served on a platter. Right? Do you remember this? And it's a gory story. But what's more amazing about that than anything is that John the Baptist went ahead of Jesus. And when John the Baptist is beheaded, something happens in Jesus' life that, that the ministry just goes high energy. It just turns. There's this kind of moral, this kind of righteous outcry about the persecution of the saints. Right? And you hear it in Jesus' tone. And you see it in the way he disciples his people. There's something going on. That's a bigger story. His friend John has been killed, and it matters. That's Antipas Herod. That's not this Herod either. This Herod is the grandson of Herod the Great. I mean, you talk about a legacy to live up to. This guy has a legacy to live up to. And, and, and Herod, this Herod is Herod Agrippa I, right? And Herod Agrippa I is the one who slew James, right? Now, it's interesting, too, to think about these King Herods. Who are these guys? Well, these guys are people who are appointed in authority over the people of God. They're Jewish kings, king of the Jews, they're all called, right? You recall when Jesus was crucified, they made fun of him by saying, yeah, you're the king of the Jews because they were still walking around slaughtering people. It's not the way of our king. Our king died on a cross. Our king is king of the Jews. Our king is king of the Christians, the Christianos. You see, this is the one we follow. And so King Herod Agrippa was going to take out the leadership of this movement and be done with it once and for all. He has this legacy to uphold. But what's interesting about these king of the Jews, they were appointed not by the Jews, by the Roman authorities. That's who appointed them. So they were kind of appointed from outside the body, over the body. It was crazy, right? And, and they had to always, that's why they're always going back to Rome about permission and approval. And there's always this kind of conflict and convoluted ideas about who was responsible for what, even the death of Jesus on the cross. Here's the trouble. We are responsible for Jesus on the cross, folks. But isn't it funny that, that there's all this kind of complication, all this complication. So that's just the Herods. These dudes are a bad, bad bunch of guys. They've been bad guys for a while. You're the grandson of the guy who slew a bunch of babies and killed his wife and his own children and stuff. Man, you've you got a legacy that's coming your way. And uh, Herod Agrippa's living up to it here, killing James. I want to talk about James and John, and I'm going to turn right quick. You can turn with me if you want to, to the Gospel of Mark. I've said before of the Gospels, if you want to read a quick short one, uh, Mark is it, man. Mark is a beautiful read. Um, chapter 3. And verse 16. This is what it says. We're going to start at 13. This is what it says. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to them, right? He, he, he called to them those that he wanted. And they came to him. They responded. And he then appointed 12. 
<coughs> designating them apostles. That it means the ones who are sent in his name, right? And these become the 12 apostles. That they might be with him and they, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are their goals, right? And these are the 12 that he appointed. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter. That's what we're going to read about today, Simon Peter, right? And then James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boan. Boan Urges, okay, which, which I can't say, so I'll say this, which means sons of thunder, okay? And then Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, there you go, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Aldephus, uh, Thaddeus, great name, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. These are the 12 people that Jesus called and they responded up to the mountain. But this James in the book of Acts we're reading about is this James, this James, son of Zebedee, brother of John, right? And there's a lot to this because what is Jesus gives him a name. We talk about names all the time, right? He calls Peter the rock, right? Simon the rock. You're the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church kind of stuff, right? Well, he calls James and John the sons of thunder. You, you can imagine these guys show up on a scene. There's going to be a scene, you know? There's something about the name that still, 2,000 years later, has this kind of response. It just sounds impressive. And this James, this one that Jesus had appointed as an apostle, as one who was sent to preach and to drive out demons, was the one that Herod Agrippa ran through with a sword. Now, I'm not sure how you would feel as the church of Jesus if your leaders were being killed for their faith, if your leaders were being run through by the appointed authorities. But it couldn't have been a good place to be as a Christian. The sons of thunder it would seem, had been silenced. And then look what happens. It says, the approval of those who witnessed the attack, those who were there and saw it happen, gave him even more uh, confidence to be more brazen in his attacks. And he goes after who? The rock. He says, well, if I could kill James, the son of thunder, I can kill the rock. No one's going to stop me from killing the rock. And this becomes his plan. But I want you to notice that it's the approval of those who are standing by that he says this. In verse 3, when he saw that this pleased, that means that they, they, they approved of it, the Jews. There was something he did that was good. These, these people were supposed to be in charge of, and he did this. It felt good. And the people were like, yeah. And he's like, all right, we're on the right track. Peter's next. Peter's next. And that's what he does. He, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This all happened during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, you see there. Verse 4, after arresting Peter, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Because there's rules. You can't just go killing willy-nilly. You've got to wait until all the religious stuff is done first. Okay? And once all the religious stuff is out of the way, then you can go on slaughtering people. That, that's how that works. <sighs> Sounds kind of familiar. Herod intended to bring him out where? In public for trial, I bet. I bet that'd be some kind of a trial, wouldn't it, for Peter the Rock? Peter, Peter this guy who's been putting his foot in his mouth with Jesus for years. Peter who probably can't believe that he's in charge of this whole operation called church. This is the guy. And he's going to bring him out for a public trial? I'm sure it would have been a speedy trial. <laughs> it would have probably been faster than that prayer, <laughs> you know. Guilty. How are we going to kill him? How are we going to kill him? Look what it says in verse 5, church. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. 
Now, anytime it says, it says this kind of uh, juxtaposition of this had happened, but this. I always like the but God statements, you know, but God intended it for good, you know. But, but here is the church, and I love this. This is the key verse of the passage today. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him, right? But the church. And, and you may not think, well, well, what can they do? Peter's in prison. What can they do? They knew enough about this Jesus. They knew enough from watching Peter. They knew enough from watching Jesus that they knew they could always go to the Father before their feet hit the floor, before their eyes kind of tinkered out for the last time at night. They had this opportunity to go before the living God for deliverance and not just for themselves. You know, sometimes our prayer lives become so selfish. I, I hope you get uncomfortable. If you find yourself saying, I want, I want, I want, or worse yet, I need, I need, I need, because we have very few needs. <laughs> You know, I hope that you would start to hear that and start to wonder, hmm, who could I be praying for? It's hard to be overly self-concerned when you're praying for others. And, and here the church is doing what the church should do, is earnestly praying to God for him. Now, this word church is ecclesia. And by the way, you're the church. You're the church today. Do you know that? By definition, you're the church. Because it's those who are gathered together, right? It's, it's, it's not so much a, a, uh, an institution as a happening. It's those who have come from their homes. It literally means ecclesia. It's ek, E-K is out, right? And so, and, and guess what ecclesia is? The called ones. So you've been called out. And it literally means they were called out from their homes. They were called out from their small group meetings. They were called out from their family groups. And they were brought together to the centralized place to worship the living God. And what? To pray. To pray together. And that's what they did. The ecclesia, the ones who were called out, got together and began to pray earnestly for Peter. Earnestly for Peter. The word earnestly is this word that means they were stretching out. Right? And literally, the text doesn't say they were earnestly praying, like the NIV says, but they were making earnest prayer. They were creating it. It's genomai. It's that idea of something's been made that's new. It wasn't there before they started doing it. It wasn't like there were prayers that had been going on forever for Peter. It was like when the church got together, they were heartbroken that Peter had been arrested. They were heartbroken that James had been killed. And there was this new thing that God did in them when they began to pray together and to stretch. And that word, it, it literally means to stretch out, to reach, to, to reach beyond themselves. Ectanos, there's the ek, you hear it? Ek, it means out of. They just, ectanos, they just reach out, they stretch out. It kind of means like your hand. And they just cry out. You know, we follow a God who hears the cries of his people. Sometimes I've had conversations with people about prayer. And I was talking to somebody about prayer, and they said, you know what frustrates me? And I'll tell you what, if you can have a moment of honesty, it's the greatest thing ever because it speaks more truth than, than, than 10,000 years of lies, you know. But this person in a moment of honesty said, I don't know what good it does to pray. And I said, well, what do you mean? I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and it did no good. It did no good. My prayers went unanswered. And I said, what was the point of the prayer? Well, I had this burden on my heart for this person, and I love him so much, and I was praying so hard for him. Oh, I was praying, praying, and my prayers were answered for them. What was the point of your prayer? Oh, I, I just wanted God to, 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 to think about that person, to do something, to, to, to answer my prayer. And it became this point in the conversation, God be praised, where all of a sudden we started to realize that maybe it was about the one praying. Maybe there was something in the burden of her heart for someone. 
Maybe there was something with the longing that she was on her knees and she had her hands stretched out and she's going, oh, just do something. That becomes real prayer. Hmm. Maybe you've had a prayer in your heart for a long time. A prayer for somebody. A prayer for something. And you wonder why. But you know, those kind of prayers, they don't happen between the, the, the bowl and your mouth. That's not enough time. And sometimes we sit with the living God and we get a burden for what's on his heart, what God cares about. And we begin to actinos as we pray. To be stretched. It's a different thing. It's a different thing, the prayer this church did here this morning. And this is the way they prayed. And, and, and uh, they just prayed for Peter, lifted up Peter. Now, I want to talk, let's go on into the text here a little bit. It says, the night before Herod was going to bring him to trial, I bet. You know, there we go, getting that word trial. I would say the night before Peter was going to be brought to judgment, because that's where Peter was going. He was sleeping between two soldiers. He was bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Right. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a, a light shone in the cell, and he, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up and said, quick, get up. He said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. What? Okay, wait a minute. So Peter's been arrested, right? And, he, and, he's, and he's, he's got these guys who are guarding him, right? And then all of a sudden, this, this angel shows up in the cell. The church is praying, and the angel shows up in the cell, and he's like, get up, get up, get up. You know, and he gets up, and I thought, man, this is crazy. What, what's, what's going on with the text? Did you read that with me? Did you see what it said? That's unbelievable. So I thought, well... I'll give you a little illustration this morning. Just a little illustration. So I brought a couple of chains. So oh, here's what I'm thinking. So here's Peter, and he's got these couple of chains, and uh, he's been bound up, and he's, he's in prison, oh, and he, he can't get out, and, and he's, he's, he's bound, and he's, he's sleeping. <laughs> what? He's sleeping, and his. This doesn't quite seem to do it, because if we go back here, I want you to see when Peter had him or when uh, Herod had him arrested, he says, after arresting, he put him in prison, and he handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. So this isn't a normal detail. This is a bunch of guys. How many guys is that? 16 to 1. You know, Peter, Peter the Rock. I mean, well, I don't know what he's going to be, Rocky or what, but 16 guys to control Peter? <laughs> Peter? Peter can pretty much do himself in pretty regularly, can he? And and here they got 16 guys. And, I, and then it says down below uh, in verse uh, 7 or 6, the night before Herod was going to bring him to trial, he was sleeping between two soldiers and he stood and then the chains fell off and this doesn't really feel very much like bondage. So I thought we'd do something kind of fun this morning. Want to do something kind of fun this morning? I thought we'd do a little pantomime. Now pantomime is something you do where you, somebody said the box. No, I'm not going to do the box. But I'm going to need some assistance. So would anyone like to help me do some pantomime this morning? I need some guys. Yeah, okay, good. I need some guys. I need some big guys, too, though. We got any big guys here? I know you don't want to say big guys. So I'm pointing them out. Okay, Steve, thank you, sir. Come on up here a minute. Um, I'm, so we're going to try to kind of lay out what's going on here with Peter because I wanted you to get the point of, about what's happening and um, put this down here. So you're a big guy. You're going to have to stand. Thanks, bro. Stand with, oh, yeah, and you're going to be a guard. We need two more. We need two more people. Another big guy and a... Good, all right, and then one more, one more person is all we need. Somebody, come on, Albert, huh? Oh, look at that, beautiful. 
And so, and so here's what's happening, and, and um, I'm going to get this out too. Because the, so I was thinking it was more about this, you know, than that little thing. And um, they were, he was kind of bound up. I don't know how you can bind yourself. And I'm sure he had some leggings, but I don't have any leggings. Wait a minute. I mean, he was bound up. You're a big guy. And you're a big guy. And you're not big guys. <laughs> so you stay here. You guys have to come up and you stand here. Right here. And then, Lori, you stand right over here. You see? And now, and then you stand there and face them. Right? And you stand right over here and face them. Who's still reading the text? Is anybody paying attention to what the word says anymore? It says uh, he was, what, six. The night before Herod was to bring him to the trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. See, I had two chains. This is just one really big one. And um, what else does it say? Sentry stood guard at the entrance. I'll be right back. So what you have is you have, you have to guard. Sentries have to, have to hold something. Because they're guarding somebody. And I don't have any swords, so, yeah. Ouch, you hit me in the head. There we go. And, and then these two are guarding me. Now, Matt was telling me that, that these guys were probably chained to me, but I won't make you do that because that would be awkward. Um, but, and you guys, do you look like you're going to sweep the floors? you got to flip that thing around, man. look like it's going to threaten somebody with it. Oh, good. This is a magnetic head. There we go. Okay. So, so this is the sentries. They're standing guard. And it says in verse 6, in the middle of all of this, Peter was laying between two, two guards. I'm exhausted. And he's sleeping. And I, I think you guys are probably sleeping too because we're chained together, but I won't make you guys get down. But then what happens is an angel of the Lord shines, shows up, and he's hitting Peter in the side. He's like, get up. And I'm thinking, how are you sleeping, Peter? Because you're bound up, and you've got all these guys that want to kill you, and tomorrow's your trial. And he's laying there, and he's bound up, and he stands up. And in this moment of God's revelation, the chains fall off. Now, these guys are definitely sleeping. Because if I stood up and dropped a bunch of chains, these guys would know it. You know what I'm saying? And these guys, I'm going to read the rest of the story. I appreciate y'all coming up. Just set the stuff. Yeah, Steve says the rest of the story, he starts to walk away. Let's read the rest of the story together. There's some great tale here about God making a way through bondage, through sin, through a hopeless situation, through his people, the church. Read with me in verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he hit Peter on the side and he said, get up, quick. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And then the angel said to this, get dressed, put on your clothes and your sandals. And Peter did that. And he says, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So you kind of gather up your cloak and you wrap it, bind it, you gird it. The word means gird around your waist because you're going on a journey, Right? And this is what it says. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. Isn't that amazing? Peter, this guy who, who, who doesn't ever seem to get it, is getting it. 
He's become a disciple, a learner that's so profoundly in touch with God that he actually believes that more often than not, what he's seeing is God stuff and not human stuff. And he's following these guys out. I don't know what it would mean if he actually believed it was actually happening. He would have acted differently, maybe. But in verse 9, it says he thought he was seeing a vision again. He's ready to learn from God. He's ready to follow God. He's ready to go anywhere that God would lead him. And they passed the first and the second guards, right? And that's what Steve was saying. And they came to the iron gate that led to the city. And that iron gate, it opened for them by itself. That means automas. All by itself, this iron gate just was flung open that led to the city. Peter still thinks he's having a vision, by the way. It opened for them by itself, and they went through the gate. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left. And then Peter came to himself and said, and said, now I know without doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. God delivered him from everything. Isn't that amazing? Just following God, being diligent, expecting a word. And here Peter sees it and goes ahead Peter, I want to talk about Peter here for a minute. Peter had gone from someone who had so much fear for himself in his circumstance that he would deny the Messiah to a person who had uh, no authority over him. We talk about Peter's denials. This is the Peter that now is so used to the voice of God, he just gets up and follows it all the time. He believes that God is going before him. He even believes it so much he doesn't understand reality is anymore because he knows what reality is. And he's gone from this person that has so much fear for himself. Why was he denying Jesus? It might cost me something. It's going to hurt. They've taken him away. And here Peter is, and he's now giving everything up, and he's got so much contentedness in God that he could sleep when bound in chains and destined for death. He could just sleep through it. I just, I'm just amazed by that transformation of someone who couldn't believe trusting in God with anything and then to give God everything. It's quite a transformation for Peter. Escape was so far down his list of expectations of God, right, that he thought it was a vision. And I'm not sure if that means that it was just going too easy. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? It's just going too well, you know. But somehow God is delivering him through his obedience to the word. And he's delivered out of chains, he's delivered past guards, he's delivered through the iron gate, and he's delivered from his judgment. And in this moment, in verse 11, Peter has had an epiphany. He realizes something, and it sounds a certain way when you read the text, but I want us to hear it for us today. I want us to hear it for us today, the word of God. It always, he always interprets his new life in the form of the gospel, but substitute some words out here in the text. And in verse 11, when it says, Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without any doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were longing for. That's what it means. There were people who were calling for his head. There were people who had been pleased with Peter's death. And, and Peter understands in this moment that God has delivered him not just out of the hands of his enemies, but out of everyone who would celebrate his demise. I don't know if you ever feel like that. I don't know if you ever feel like that. 
But it's an amazing word from Peter here. It's like God makes promises to us. No matter what we face, be faithful. No matter how much fear we have, continue to follow him. No matter what the cost is, continue to go. Do you hear what I'm saying? You just press on in the journey because God is making a way. What I love about Peter's experience here is he doesn't know he's been delivered until he's been delivered. You know, sometimes when you're on your knees and you're praying or you're, you're praying for that person, you're praying for yourself, you're in a situation that you just feel like you've been torn apart. You're being ripped in two. And in the middle of that situation, you might feel like there's no hope, there's no way out. And yet the whole time, God's been providing a way, providing a way for you. That's the word this morning. He's making a way, making a way through. Now, I want to say one, two things in closing. The first is this. If you look at verse 19, after Herod went through and tried to find Peter because he really did get out. You know, there might be people say, oh, he didn't really escape. No, he really did escape. Peter really escaped. And in, in verse 18, it says, the next morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had happened of Peter. I bet there was no small commotion because somebody was going to have to pay a price for this. These guys didn't just walk off the job and go, well, we tried. <laughs> That's not how it worked. Herod wanted blood. Look at 19. After Herod had made a thorough search for him and did not find him, he cross-examined each of the guards and then ordered them to be killed. These guys paid with their life. Think they just let him walk out? Go on, Peter. No way. No way. This all happened. Look at verse 3 and 4. It all happened during the time of unleavened bread. As a matter of fact, it says in verse 4, he was waiting till after Passover supper in order to execute his plan. For Peter, as a Jew, the Exodus, the, the Passover supper was a remembrance of the Exodus. He was delivered, that God had delivered him from, from these people who would have them killed. That God had delivered his people, you understand. There was this Passover supper where they had unleavened bread, the bread was flat, and God had prepared a way, and they would celebrate this, the way through the desert. When they were longing for food, God provided them food, and they're longing for the promised land, God was leading them there. And even though they did not doubt, they did not believe it, and they doubted God constantly, God was making his promises known and fulfilled, and that's the truth for you and me today. No matter where we are in the journey, God is making a way. But there's something else, you see, for Peter. Because as a Christian, as a little Christ, he also knew not just the God who delivered the Jews from the Egyptians, but he remembered the God who delivered him through the cross. This is the gospel that Peter has been proclaiming for oh so long. You see, Christ died. Christ resurrected. And Christ that lived with them. This is the gospel that Peter proclaimed. Peter knew something about God's deliverance. He had such confidence in God that he could sleep the night of his trial. What come what may, Lord, I am yours. No matter what happens tomorrow, today I am yours. And Peter would have remembered the Last Supper, right? And we talk about the Last Supper. The Last Supper is that time that Jesus got his friends around a table. And he said something. He's the teacher, the rabbi. And he said, I no longer call you slaves, but friends. Because you sat at my table with me. And there's this whole new story for Peter. He remembers the Last Supper. He remembers the denial of Jesus. He remembers even though that Jesus went and died for him, he had the audacity to deny Jesus to others. He remembers the bloody cross the sacrifice of the sinless lamb, the one who was above reproach, who no one could hold a candle to in a conversation. He remembers this Jesus 
who paid the price. He remembers the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> Peter was there when, when Jesus was raised. Peter was there when the women came running and said, he's alive, he's alive. And they said, you must be nuts. This is the Peter. This is the one. Peter remembers the Last Supper. You know, I was thinking about this as I was preparing. We call that the Last Supper. But you know, Jesus ate and dined. Didn't Peter say it last week to Cornelius? You know, some of us, he actually had food with after the resurrection. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Peter remembers the Last Suppers with his Lord and his Savior. And Peter remembers the gospel that had been proclaimed for years and been received by many. Some people that he thought, man, God ain't working there. And God moved in hearts and brought sinners to repentance and brought peace with God. And Peter knows all of this. And so in this time of Passover meal, you can imagine him laying in the prison. He knows it's the high holy day of deliverance. He knows the stories. He's been preaching the gospel. And he lays there and he believes that God has a way. God is providing a way forward. You see, because for a Jew and a Christian, the Passover feast was a pregnant time. It was a pregnant time. There was hope in spite of suffering. There was joy in spite of pain. This is the time that Peter remembered as he lay sleeping in his cell. And this is what we remember today. The time that we have of reflection on the word. And I mean the big W word as in the word was made flesh and came to dwell among us. The time we have to just take a break and just think about it. The glory of the cross. The price of the sacrifice. It's a pregnant time. A time of hope. A time of joy. And brothers and sisters, it's a time of new birth. Born again with heavenly bread and heavenly blood. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are all drawn here together as the ecclesia, those who are called out of our homes, called out of our situations, called out of whatever we're going through, Lord, we're here. And you know what, Lord, today there might be people who aren't here, who we, we know are suffering, who we know are in, in bondage, who have not been freed. Father God, may our hearts break today for those that your heart broke for. May we, may we know your love and your touch. If there's, any, if there's anything, Lord, today we need, we need new birth. If there's anything we need today, Lord, we need your Son and our Savior on the cross. And yet we find ourselves as little Christs, as this new creation, remembering the deliverance remembering the promise, remembering the glory. Today, Lord, I pray that if there, if there is a need to, to bring light to a dark place, that your spirit would break through, that there would be light in a dark corner. If there's a need for us to get up and go and follow you, I pray that that would be made clear, Lord, that we would know it's time to go, that we go forward with you. If there's something, Lord, that we're just, we're just crushed about, I pray your timing and not ours. I pray your will and not ours. I pray your deliverance and not ours. Because, oh, your deliverance is beautiful. This day, we're here before you.
this day we give us we give you our hearts and we just long we just stretch out our hands to the savior thank you thank you for peter thank you for uh, james thank you for jesus thank you for this day we pray these things in the name of the savior amen